0: Hey everybody, this is Hasa and you are listening to Decrypted, a weekly podcast that delves into politics and history to decrypt complex topics. It doesn't matter what your background is, get yourself a cup of coffee or tea if you're a tea person, because in today's episode, we're talking about soccer or football. Football is the world's most popular sport, so the chances are that you are a football fan. You either played at a professional level, or maybe with your friends or colleagues, or maybe you enjoy watching a good football game to get your adrenaline pumping. Or let me guess, you are an occasional football fan like me, you know, I'll watch a football game if my country's national team is playing and that's it. So, you may say, yes, Hausa, I like football, but what does it have to do with politics? And I hear you. That is why, in the next few minutes, I'll tell you about the entangled relationship between football and politics. How has football spread to the Middle East? And what is the relationship between football and the struggle for independence? And how has football been used as a double-edged sword to repress and to revolt against repression and oppression? And if that sounds interesting to you, give me your attention and together, let's dive in. First things first, to say that football has always been political seems like it- Bold statement, right? But it's the truth, because modern football as we know it today was born in Britain in the 19th century, and during that period, the British Empire was at its fierce stage. It controlled 23% of the world's population, and territory speaking, it stretched over 35.5 million kilometers square. So, you should know that the spread of English today is not the sole major legacy of the British Empire. The British also internationalized sports like cricket, golf, and yes, football. But why sport particularly? Well, the British thought, if we spread our culture, we would be able to civilize the locals and establish discipline. And it'll be easy for the locals to perceive us as good guys. So, in this sense, football was used to make locals accept Britain's imperial aspirations by accepting its culture and beliefs. And in simple words, the British wanted the locals to take their way of living as the way, you know, as the norm. So when it comes to football, it is clear that Britain used soft power. And you may ask, but what is this soft power thing? Can can power be soft and so is there something like hard power? And yes, you're right. And to bring the picture closer to you, let's talk about movies for a second. A a bit odd, I know. Well, if you watched American movies released during the Cold War, say, uh, for example, the Iron Curtain or the first Star Wars, you may have noticed that the political and ideological aspect was pretty much present throughout the movie. And the goal here was to show the world that Americans are really good people. They have prestige, their culture is like no other, you know. There are a bunch of messages that portray the United States in a very good way. So for external audiences who have not been there, the movies would shape their perception of Americans and their country. So we could say that the United States used uh, cinema to project its soft power And here, I know I promised this podcast would be free from jargon, but uh, I guess if I explained the jargon, it would be okay, right? What do you think? Well, um, soft power is a political science term, and it was introduced by a prominent scholar named Joseph Nye in 1990. And without going into much detail that we really don't need here, soft power is basically when you use intangible aspects like your culture and your values to influence others. And in this sense, the British wielded soft power and they knew how to use it, talking about football, about language. And by the way, the British Empire would not have been able to conquer vast territories had it relied on violence and military power only. Okay, but Hufca, how did that happen? The British certainly didn't have a magic stick to make their wishes come true, right? And here, allow me to tell you that the process was neither smooth nor linear. Football was not diffused in a blink of an eye. And the process required, first and foremost, time. And second, it relied on several uh, dynamics like migration and institutions like schools So, for example, if you are a British migrant, say, for example, a um, student or military officer or a teacher, chances are that you would tell your colleagues and friends about that local game you play in your home country, right? And guess what? This is what happened in many regions, and the Middle East is no exception. In the late 19th century Britain conquered Egypt in 1882 mainly to safeguard its commercial interests because remember the Suez canal was and still is a commercial hub and for the British back at the time it was the gateway to many countries in Asia so, the British started diffusing football primarily among the Egyptian elite, you know, uh, people who studied at big universities and had the money. And slowly but surely, football reached lower classes and became the game of the masses. But over time, that tool used by the British to uh, legitimize its conquests it backfired, because football the sport used to control the people became the sport those people used to resist European imperialism and colonialism. And that's an interesting evolution, right? So from Egypt and Algeria to Sudan, football underwent a progressive localization and people started using it to express discontent towards the colonizer and to achieve independence. And always in Egypt, since it is a country where football has always been uh, deeply politicized, if you take Al-Ahli team, it was born in 1907, nearly 15 years before Egypt's independence. And the founder of Al-Ahli was a nationalist man named Saad Zagloul. And guess what? That same person led the Egyptian revolution against Britain in 1919. Okay? So... On the flip side, there is Zamalek. it was created in 1911 to rival Al-Ahli, so if we were to draw the difference between Al-Ahli and Zamalek in, in a few words, I'll tell you that Al-Ahli was nationalist and anti-colonial, and it was the club of the people. On the other hand, Zamalek was the club of the Egyptian elite that had close links with the royal family, and by the way, the club was named Farouk from 1940 until the overthrow of the Egyptian monarchy in '52, because King Farouk was supporting the club. And so now you're able to see where the football politics relationship is going, right? And yes, we can apply the football dynamics in Egypt to many uh, uh, other countries, but with nuance, of course. And if you take Morocco, for example, the Widad and Raja clubs are a bit similar to Al-Ahli and Zamalek in Egypt. Widad was founded in 1937, mainly to resist European restrictions to locals when it comes to access in sports facilities. But it was closely supported by Hassan II, way before he succeeded his father. So he would meet with the players, reward them, and most importantly, capitalize on Wida to assert his legitimacy and build a bond with citizens, especially the youth. And Raja, on the other hand, was more associated with the working class and the struggle for independence. And moving to Algeria, where football was part of the struggle for independence, As you know, the Algerians fought a bloody and bitter war to get their country's independence. And the war was led by le Front de Libération Nationale. So the FLN was created in 54, and four years later, this nationalist party created its own football team in Tunis. And this was a big symbol for Algerians. You know, creating their own football meant that sooner rather than later, they will become independent and the French will leave. And it goes without saying that France was not happy. So it exerted pressure on FIFA. So the federation would punish those who played for the team because they had been playing for prominent French clubs and they didn't have much information on how things would evolve. But still, they took the risk for the sake of uh, their home country's independence, and as they were rightly called, the dribblers of independence. So what happened in Egypt, Morocco and Algeria was pretty much similar in other Middle East countries, but, you know, with slight differences, of course. And if you are curious to know more about football and a quest for independence in the Middle East and beyond, I invite you to read a great book, The Ball is Round by David Goldblatt. Now, let's shift to the dark aspect of football. The use of football to divert people's attention from core problems and grievances. In the Middle East and elsewhere, authoritarian rulers have long followed this strategy. They take the game of the masses and amplify its presence among the people to keep them busy. Now, imagine you were born and raised in a country where freedom of expression is limited. You see people being arrested simply for asking the government to build decent hospitals and schools for their kids. You're struggling to make ends meet, and you're working somewhere and your boss is horrible. They don't respect you, they overwhelm you with work 5 minutes before leaving time, And maybe you also have a few problems at home. That's a tough life, isn't it? Now, if your country or city has a bunch of good football teams and you happen to be a big football fan, that's some oxygen, right? Meeting with your friends and going to the stadium keeps you going, right? But does it solve your problems? No. No. Does it add money to your bank account? No, it doesn't. Does it build a hospital in your town? It also doesn't. But it does one thing. It distracts you. It gives you dopamine and distracts you from your problems. And another thing is that when you're watching a football game on on TV or at the stadium, the rules are known and the game is pretty fair. If your favorite team performs well, it'll win. And that gives you a great feeling of achievement. And it goes without saying that there is no surprise or uncertainty. So for 90 minutes, you feel safe and you escape from the chaotic life you have. And you know, you can make a decision without much interference. Because you are the one who decides whether you want to support team X or Y or Z without someone above you in the hierarchy telling you what to do. How good is that? And is this healthy? Yes. Does it divert your attention from your society's problems? Same answer, yes. So over time, your priorities tend to shift and you become a person whose happiness or anger depends a lot on football. Another facet of football is repression. In the Middle East, football is associated with different images that are paradoxical. One is sport, the other is violence, and the difference between the two is often blurry or non-existent, because some regimes use that first image and blend it with the second. Now what I mean is that the stadium can be a domain of sport and one of grave human rights violations. And in Syria, this has been common. Under the current president Bashar and his father, stadia were used to detain people. And one of the notorious instances was during the Hama massacre in 1982. And since this is the 41st anniversary of the Sabroshatila massacre, and no accountability has been served, It's important to mention that the Israeli Defense Forces and the Lebanese Phalangists used a stadium to conduct interrogations and to detain people. So if you are a football fan, your perception of that sport gets distorted. Here the stadium and by default the game is an image associated with fairness, with joy, with escape from problems. But at the same time, it is a place of detention, torture, and violence. And of course, it goes without saying that the use of stadia for violence is not specific to the Middle East. There is Chile, there is Guinea, Egypt, and France as well. The 1961 massacre of Algerians in Paris is a pitch black chapter in French history, and um, historians report that one stadium served as a detention center. But still, it seems that repression and oppression have always backfired against the oppressor. The British used football to support their conquest, but it backfired. And the same thing is happening with authoritarian regimes. I'll again take the case of Egypt because That country has a special relationship with football. In Egypt, you know, it's normal for someone to identify by the club they support. Say, for example, like, I am Ahlawi or Zammarkawi. Because, you know, it's a matter of allegiance and faithfulness. And in Egypt, football has been a powerful way to express discontent towards injustice, corruption and all the widespread viruses that are debilitating the country. So the stadium here is a space of protest. And you know, I truly believe that the Arab uprisings are by far the most accurate chapter you can use to understand the role of football in defying state authority. Because the ultras in Egypt emerged in 2007 and the interior ministry has always been confrontational towards them. Despite the fact that there is no um, solid evidence that confirms like, okay, the ultras have been political before 2011. So you may ask, but why the confrontation? And I'll simply tell you because the ultras hit where it hurts the most are mainly young people, yet they have tremendous political consciousness. And if you were the police or the regime in general, trust me, you would be scared. So long story short, the ultras of Al-Ahli and Zamalik confronted state authority in 2011. And let's be blunt here, the confrontation was a hard-to-swallow pill for the regime, so, nearly a year later, al Ahly played against the team of Port Said and it lost and a massacre took place under the eyes of the police. What happened is that supporters of the Port Said team attacked the Ahlawis and what did the police do? No, no, it didn't handle the situation and no, it didn't manage the violent crowd. And let me tell you that the police closed the stadium gates, lights were turned off, and it watched the assailants killing 72 Ahlawis in the most violent ways. Now, you may think the police could have prevented this tragedy. Why close the gates and why allow people to enter the stadium carrying knives and stones? Maybe they're complicit? so it's a number of details that don't add up that make some believe that the police orchestrated the massacre and if we assume it didn't it still turned a blind eye so the ultras learned the lesson the hard way and know that confronting the state costs a lot and this massacre was the turning point that sort of politicized the ultras now who's right and who's wrong, that's another question, but I leave it to you. But all I can say is that the regime stigmatized and profiled the ultras as deviant individuals whose goal is to create chaos, and with that, it converted the stadium into a space of revenge and violence. And, of course, when we talk about repression, Uh, Do you know that in some countries, football is also a domain where patriarchy is expressed, usually in the name of religion? In Iran, for example, the 1979 revolution replaced the secular regime with the theocracy. And the new regime banned women from attending football games, and that ban continued for decades. But over the past years, FIFA pressured the Iranian regime to forego the ban. And one turning point was in 2019, when a girl called Sahar set herself on fire after she was banned from entering the stadium and arrested. And since then, women were allowed to attend some games but under um, many restrictions. And it has recently been reported that the Supreme National Security Council lifted the ban. But it remains to see how things would unfold. I'm honestly not very optimistic about that. Going to Afghanistan, the situation is also full of intricacies. Because the women's national football team is exiled in Australia. Because, you know, the... For the Taliban government back home, women won't be able to cover their bodies and faces, so they can't play football. So, by default, the government doesn't recognize the women's national team, and so does FIFA. So, here you can clearly see that football is also a domain where patriarchy oppresses women under the banner of Islam and at the same time a domain where the oppressed resists and confronts the oppressor. So this is the bittersweet story of football in the Middle East. It was brought by the British in the context of empire, conquest and imperialism. Football is associated with three different images that are dual colonization versus decolonization freedom versus repression and oppression versus emancipation and it is this duality that politicizes almost everything about football the stadium the ball the clubs their managers the managers of those managers and that being said the floodlights in stadia are on the players and the ball but Is the game the most important thing in football? Maybe by giving our full attention to the game, we're probably missing a lot of details. Thank you very much for listening to this episode from start to finish. If you enjoyed it, please share it with your friends, colleagues and family. If you have any questions, comments or remarks, please find me on Instagram. LinkedIn, and Twitter. I would also be happy if you suggest topics that you want me to decrypt for you. And in the meantime, take care, stay safe, and stay tuned for the next episode in which I will decrypt football diplomacy and the interesting concept of sports washing.